Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Genier on Talk Show. It is Friday, August 5th, 2011. I want to make one announcement. Um, I'll be on Republic Radio on August 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, I think it is. It's 12 p.m. Central Time, right? But the announcement is on the front page of um, org. I'll be on with um, Dina Spignola. And she, I don't even know what she really wants to talk about. She, she heard my, um, she saw my mind comp site because of the, the discussion I had with Jim Condit about Adolf Hitler a couple of weeks ago. And um, she, she really professed a, a, a liking in the site, and, and she asked me to be on her program. So I imagine she wants to talk about Adolf Hitler and, and Nazi Germany, which is fine by me. That's great. It, it's um, yeah, you know that my, my my discussion about religion and Christian identity and and um, true Christianity cannot be separated from any discussion I have about Adolf Hitler. No matter how ashamed of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, programmed and and when I say programmed, I mean the, those Americans who are programmed by the Jewish mass media. No matter how ashamed they are of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, that doesn't change the truth that Germany was a Christian state. Those people were the kindred of all Saxon Englishmen and all Saxon Americans. Adolf Hitler was a Christian man who had resisted international Jewry and the American and the British people, along with some of their other cousins in Europe, played the whore for the Jew by destroying, by destroying our Christian German brethren on behalf of the Jew. And that's a shame that we have to confront. If we don't confront that shame and confess that sin and admit it, we will never be able to arrive at the truth about anything. We will never be able to stand at the judgment of God. That's a shame that we, have, as a nation, we have to confess and come clean about. And if we're ashamed of Nazi Germany and our own German brethren in World War II for standing up to international Jewry, that is an even bigger shame on our part. Adolf Hitler was fighting our fight. He may have chose to do it the wrong way, but he was doing it nevertheless. And, and he really didn't choose to do it at all because the Jews declared war on Adolf Hitler, and we were their horse. And that's just the way it is. And, and that's the way to look at history from a proper Christian perspective. Okay, last week we talked about Matthew 22, and Matthew 22 contained quite a bit of material. I'm not going to recap half of it. I, I would like to say that I believe it's fully demonstrable that the um, the wedding garment that the man was missing at the wedding supper of the Lamb was indeed his flesh. If we aren't of one flesh with Christ, if we aren't of that same flesh, that Adamic flesh, we don't have a chance in hell of being at the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And Yahweh marries the city of God. It's the city of God that's the bride. It, it's the, the, the city of God represents the people of God in, it, in, in their proper divine law-abiding governmental unit. And the only people getting into that city are the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And as Revelation chapter 22 states, if you don't get into that city, you're going into the lake of fire. There's no third choice. Another thing we learned in Matthew 22, I, I hope, I pray, when, when I discussed um, Josephus last week and the beliefs of the Sadducees, and, and that's that was the purpose of my discussion from from Josephus, but we also saw that it was the Pharisees who had, um, well, well, I'll quote Josephus again. This is important to grasp this, this idea, right? It, it's important to see what these sects were about. If we don't really understand what the sects were about, they were about, the Pharisees were about a lot more than just legalism. That was only one major problem that they had. Josephus always tells also, also tells us that they were um, they also believed that souls have an immortal rigor in them, which we would have to agree with, of course, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life, and the later are to be detained. Here's the problem: and the later are to be detained in an everlasting prison but that the former shall have power to revive and live again. That, as is fully evident to anybody who understands Catholicism, is the precursor to the Catholic idea of heaven and hell. Whereas Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 said, and I'll quote the King James because I thought about coming up with this topic at the last minute. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, meaning the transgression of Adam and the fact that all men are destined to die because of the sin of Adam, right? Even so, by the righteousness of one, meaning Christ, the favor or the free gift is the subject here, came upon all men, all Adamic men, unto justification of life. And it's fully evident in the scripture that contrary to the Pharisees, all of the children of Israel, all of the offspring of the children of Israel shall be saved. The idea of punishment in eternal hell belonged to the Pharisees and it belongs to the Catholics. And if you hold that idea today, well, in my estimation, you are holding on to a piece of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's not all about legalism. I mean, that's a great portion of, of the religious problems that they had. But they also sought to control men through their legalism. So, just like the Catholic Church, the warnings about eternal hellfire had to be had to accompany their will to control, their desire to control men. When in fact, in the gospel, all of the children of Israel shall be saved. Salvation is entirely racial, period. That's where the line is drawn. That's where Yahweh, our God, drew the line. Who are we 
to dispute it. Now, it's true that some of us will awaken to eternal reproach, but we will be in the kingdom of God. And there are many scriptures that support that. If indeed we're of the children of Israel in the first place. Matthew chapter 23. Then Yahshua spoke to the crowds and to his students, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit upon the seat of Moses. Therefore, all things whatever they should tell you, you do when you keep. But according to their deeds, you do not do. For they say and do not do. The seat of Moses is the seat of authority, of course, in Judea. And many Christians, being rebellious, do not like this, and I don't blame them, but we have to live with it, right? Yahshua Christ was indeed telling his students to submit to the worldly authority. As we saw in Matthew 22, Christ said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, so that you could render unto God what is God's. One lesson which is fully evident throughout the Old Testament is that God uses worldly authority to punish a sinful people. And when that happens, even the good people among those sinners suffer on account of it. Jeremiah went to prison, right? The children of Israel did evil before the sight of Yahweh on many occasions, and he gave them over both to wicked rulers and to other nations. Judges chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. And the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and depressed the children of Israel 18 years. All the children of Israel that were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. From the consequences of disobedience, or curses of disobedience, that result from disobedience to God, we see these things. Deuteronomy 28.28 Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropes in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt only be oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. Thine ox shall be slain before thine eyes, and thou shalt not eat thereof. Thine ass shall be violently taken away, taken away from before thy face and shalt not be restored to thee. Thy sheep shall be given unto thine enemies, and thou shalt have none to rescue them. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand. You won't be able to do a damn thing about it. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not, eat up. <laughs> we have Mexicans and Negroes crawling all over the place today doing that. 
and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always, so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And mad it makes us because we're observing it today, those of us who are awake. Whether it happens from without or from within makes no difference. In the times of the judges, the Israelites were ruled over by outside nations as a punishment from God. Judea, in the first century, was ruled over by Rome, but that's not what Christ really refers to here. Even before Rome, in the centuries before Christ, Judea was infiltrated and its government was usurped by the Canaanite Edomites. Edomite rule under the Herods greatly oppressed the people. Rome may have actually helped to preserve the country. Romans chapter 13, in Romans chapter 13, Paul speaks of earthly authority and our need to submit ourselves to it. And Peter in his epistle states that same thing at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and I quote, You must be obedient to every authority created by mankind on account of the prince or Yahshua whether to kings as if being superior or to governors as if being sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, but for the praise of those doing good. We see the theme in Peter is that Yahweh appoints government to punish sinners, right? Because thusly is the will of Yahweh doing good to muzzle the ignorance of foolish men as free men, yet not as if having freedom for a cover for evil, but as servants of God, you must honor all, love the brotherhood, meaning your kinsmen. Fear Yahweh and honor the king. Remember, and, and this is a, a, something in many people in Israel identity even don't really notice. Remember that it is the children of Israel who demanded an earthly king when they had a theocracy and a just theocracy. Yahweh promised them seven times of punishment for their disobedience. We subjected ourselves, our ancestors, to, earth, to earthly authorities. We traded the kingship of our God for earthly authorities. We were warned that we were going to be screwed when we did that. And, and now we have to live with the consequences. That's just the way it is. It can be argued that that seven times of punishment was 25, represented 2,520 prophetic years. While there are also many other prophecies in play, and while the times of punishment are evidently not uniform for all of the tribes of Israel, the first advent of Christ came only about six centuries into that promised period of punishment. Therefore, the advice of the apostles is certainly sound at the time that they gave it. There is no escape from the judgments of the word of God for the children of Israel. To repeat part of what Christ said here, the scribes and the Pharisees sit upon the seat of Moses. Therefore, all things, whatever they should tell you, you do and you keep. We do see that the apostles drew a line, and an important one. And that is where their disobedience to God, or their obedience to God, what was interfered with, by the scribes and the Pharisees. Christ had said it, Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. 
when commanded by the Pharisees not to spread the gospel, which Christ had commanded them to spread, the apostles responded, we ought to obey God rather than men. And thereby, they resisted the authority when it came to the authority trying to force them to disobey God. So we see that the apostles would obey the worldly authorities only up to the point where it infringed, what where it did not infringe upon their ability to be obedient to God. The Jews, looking to persecute Christians everywhere, constantly agitated Rome, the worldly authority, the, the supreme worldly authority at the time, against Christians. For this reason, Paul wrote to Timothy that if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So while for for, um, for for the sake of common sense, we should obey the worldly authorities when they have power over us, because they only have that power over us that God wills them to have over us. We should only obey them to the point where we would have to be disobedient to God if we obey them. The government won't force you to marry another man, or at least you must resist it if it ever tried, right? The government can't force you to marry a negress or outside of your race, but we have to resist it if it tried, because we must please God first. At this point, you know, I'm always confronted with what authority I use to um, to replace the, the titles Lord and God in the Christogenian New Testament. Why I chose to do that and, and by what authority I used to do that. And, and I'm going to talk about that for a minute here. Yeah, you know, the... Um, the Greek translators in the third century BC, well, they didn't all do it, and there's proof they didn't all do it, but they looked at the Greek word curio. They, they looked at the Hebrew tetragrammaton, which we know stands for the name Yahweh. And when they saw it, they wrote the word curios. They didn't all do it because some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Greek. And the Dead Sea Scrolls writers understood that the Tetragrammaton shouldn't necessarily be rendered as curios, which is only a title and not a name. So you'll find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the ones in Greek, which are copies of the Septuagint, wherever the Septuagint has curios, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the ones that are in Greek, there's only a few of them. They don't have curios. They have Yahweh written in Hebrew letters. Yes, they do. They understood that. The King James translators, when they looked at the name Yahweh in the Tetragrammaton, they wrote Lord. Well, my assertion would be that if the Greeks, if the Hebrews writing in Greek, could look at Yahweh in Hebrew and write curios in Greek, then me being a translator of Greek, I can look at curios in Greek, knowing that it refers to God, and I could write Yahweh. 
And I have every grounds to do that. And this is why. Because in first century Judea, the apostles were told, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they say, you do. Just don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. Well, one thing that the scribes and the Pharisees on Moses' seat did for several hundred years, and Josephus records it, was they forbid people the use of the word Yahweh. So the apostles were basically forbidden to use the Tetragrammaton by the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a matter of clear historical record. Well, you know something? Today, those scribes and Pharisees, Moses' seat got torn down in 70 A.D. And even though in a lot of ways the Edomite Jews rule over us, in that way, they don't rule over me, and I could write what I want. So when I saw Curios in the Greek, I had no problem writing Yahweh. Sometimes when I see Theos, I also write Yahweh. Now, that's not good Greek, but I would think it's good religion. And that's why I did that. And I'm certainly not ashamed of it. Matthew 23, 4. And they bind burdens heavy and hard to bear and lay them upon the shoulders of men. But when, but they lift, I'm sorry, but they with their finger do not wish to move them. That's a literal translation. Today, our modern governments, they do likewise. Because the Edomite Jew, as he controlled first century Judea, again controls the entire Western world. We once again see a period of bureaucratic control and endless regulation created purposely for the oppression of men. Wherever you see endless bureaucracy and endless regulation, you should know that Satan rules the world. What we see in government today is modern Phariseeism. Endless and burdensome regulations, and the government lifts not one finger in order to assist men attempting to comply with those regulations. Rather, they have made tens of thousands of ways for the lawyers and accountants, their fellow scribes, to steal the wealth of nations like parasites on a cadaver. In some industries, they have made such a web of endless regulation that they can make a case for any illegal activity against anyone at any time and defraud that individual of his livelihood because there are so many extant regulations that it is impossible for someone to keep track of them, of them all, and comply with them all. Verse 5. And all their deeds they do, for which to be observed by man. For they broaden their phylacteries and make great their images. I'm sorry, and make great their fringes. I really need my glasses checked again. If the rulers and leaders and wealthy men of this world would do anything good, it is only for which to be seen by men. So that they can appear to be good, while in the eyes of God, they were really evil. 
So when they make a gift or a pledge, it's often accompanied with a banquet or a press release or a large plaque. This is so that they can magnify themselves to make themselves appear to be great and good. For instance, Bill Gates has given hundreds of million do- millions of dollars away for vaccine distribution in third world countries. And then, in a separate venue, he announced in a seminar that the world population would be reduced by 15% or so through the use of vaccines. He looks like the great humanitarian in the meantime, right? They get away with such criminal activity in the name of good right in front of our faces. Thus Yahweh said in Deuteronomy that his people would be oppressed so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. That's the point where we are to be oppressed to for our disobedience. And any of us that know the story and know the book, we are mad, but there's not much we can do about it. Not yet. The fringes of garments were to be decorated according to the law in the manner which we see commanded at Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. Evidently, the Pharisees were persuaded that a wider fringe made man appear to be even more pious. Phylacteries, this is, uh, I think these are comical. Phylacteries were strips of parchment, originally, which with pieces of the law written upon them and, and used as amulets. The famous silver scrolls of archaeology, if anybody's familiar with them, that they are a very probable example of a phylactery in the Old Testament period. The, um, the, the Greek word phylactery is from phylax, which simply indicates a place where something is kept or stored, right? The Jews of today take Exodus 13.9 and Deuteronomy 16, 6.8 literally and to a ridiculous degree. Uh, I'm going to um, read those passages, right? Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9 states, And these words which, which I, meaning Yahweh, commanded thee to say, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. In other words, the children of Israel were always to um, always to discuss and have the word of God on their lips. And that way they wouldn't forget the law, right? And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon my hand, and they shall be as frontlets between mine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thine house and on thy gates. A lot of us hang the Ten Commandments up in our kitchens and, or on our front doors or in various places on our house. And, and that's fine. We're obeying that this law in Deuteronomy. We don't even realize it, right? But I believe that where it reads, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon my hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, that God is really speaking allegorically there, right? He's not speaking literally. Exodus 13, 9. 
and it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that Yahweh's law be put in thy mouth. But with a strong hand, Yahweh brought thee out of Egypt. And, and I would also read that allegorically, where it says that the law of, of God should be a memorial between our eyes. But the Jews actually take small portions of the law, pieces of, of paper with the law written on them, and they place these little pieces of paper rolled up. They place them in little boxes, and those little boxes are then tied with string to their foreheads. I think that's absolutely funny. It's ridiculous. It makes them look like circus clowns. But that's what they were doing, and that's what they do to this day. Broaden their phylacteries. I think every Jew should have a phylactery weighs about 300 pounds tied around his forehead. <laughs> Make it really broad. Well, well, all of this is an attempt, and, and look up phylactery on, on Google and look at some of the pictures. All of this is an attempt to display righteousness outwardly, while in reality, there is no righteousness in them. Pretending to be pious, they make caricatures of themselves, and in effect, they actually mock God rather than honoring him. That's the way I look at this. We can imagine that first century Pharisees were seen by Christ in much the same way as these modern Jews do. Outward signs of piety should be, should be absolutely useless to a true Christian. We don't need that crutch. Real piety should be exhibited in love and in good deeds and services performed for the benefit of our brethren. Matthew 23, 6. And they loved the best seats at the dinners and the first benches in the assembly halls. And the greetings in the markets and to be called by man, rabbi, which is teacher in Hebrew, right? or from the word for teacher in Hebrew. Let me quote Job, verse 32. I'm sorry, chapter 32, verse 20. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. We talked last week about the acceptance of persons, the receiving of persons being the acceptance of a man's status or stature, right? and elevating men who are perceived to be as of, of higher status above others. Neither give me flattering titles, neither let me give flattering titles unto man. This is Job 32.21. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles. In doing so, my maker would soon take me away. The Pharisees love the honor of men. Real Christians should have no care about the honor of men. Real Christians should eschew the bestowing of titles and pretenses of authority, recognizing that all men are fallible and prone to err. While, while we are conditioned by the world and perceive things differently today than we actually should, in reality, the bestowing of a title upon men is a stark form of flattery, and that's what Job is talking about. Verse 8, 
but you should not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. While we all have different gifts, and we all shall have different rewards in accordance with our labors in the kingdom of God, and while some of us are given much greater worldly tasks to perform than others, this does not make us better than our lesser brethren. For we are all equal in those respects in the eyes of God, each of us being one of his children, if indeed we are his children, true children of Israel and of Adam. Therefore, while we may learn from our brother, or while we may receive assistance or even sustenance from our brother, the ability of our brother to do that is also a gift to him from Yahweh and a responsibility to him from Yahweh. And he uses that gift and that responsibility for the purpose of Yahweh. Let me read 1 Corinthians from verse 12. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 4. This is a long reading. I feel that I have to get it in here. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are diversities of services and the same prince or Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God who operates all things at all. And to each is given manifestation of the spirit towards that which is advantageous. While to know what while to one through the spirit a word of wisdom is given, then to another a word of knowledge down through the same spirit, and to another faith in the same spirit, and to another gifts of the means of healing in the same spirit, and to another operations of power, and to another interpretation of prophecy, and to another dissolution of spirits, and to another of sorts of languages, and to another interpretation of languages. But all these things, one and the same, spirit operates dividing personally to each, just as he, our God, wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also are the anointed, the people of God. For also in one spirit, all we into one body have been immersed, whether Judean Israelites or Greek Israelites, whether Judeans or Greeks, whether bondmen or freemen, and all one spirit have been watered. For also the body is not one member, but many. But if perhaps the foot may say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Because of this, is it not of the body? And if perhaps the ear may say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Because of this, is it not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where is the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where is the sense of smell? But now Yahweh places the members, each one of them, in the body. Our gifts are not from us, they're from God. Just as he wishes. Under the old covenant, it is evident that the appointment of certain offices was given to certain tribes, again, for our learning experience. They were just as big as screw-ups, right? Verse 19. But if all would be one member, where is the body? And now indeed, many are members, yet are one body. And the eye is not able to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
In other words, if we disregard our brethren, we do so at our own peril. But still much more, those members of the body imagined to be too weak are necessary. And those of the body, which we imagine to be less valuable, upon these we confer more abundant dignity, and those unseemly of us have more abundant elegance. In other words, we care equally for the least of our brethren. But the elegant of us have no need, and we have no need for egos to be stroked, right? Rather, Yahweh has tempered the body together, giving more abundant esteem to that which is wanting, in order that there would be not division in the body, but the members would have the same concern for one another. Titles and ranks cause that division, right? And if one member is affected, all the members are affected together. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice together. So then, you are an anointed body and members by destiny. My translation, not the convoluted King James translation. And while Yahweh places these in the assembly, firstly, ambassadors, secondly, interpreters of prophecy, thirdly, Teachers, after that, those with abilities or powers, certain special powers. Then gifts of the means of healing, supports, guides, sorts of languages, people that could speak language as well, are all ambassadors, are all interpreters of prophecy, are all teachers, are all able to do special things. Do all have gifts of the means of healing? Of course not. Do all speak in languages? Do all interpret now, you admire the better gifts, and yet I show to you a way just as excellent. The way just as excellent, which Paul describes, is the love which we should have for one another, as Paul goes on to explain in chapter 13 of this epistle. The point here is that while some of us have greater gifts, greater abilities, we are all members of the same body, the body of Christ. The hand or the eye are nothing without the rest of the body. Therefore, we should all esteem all of our kinsmen equally, whereby the bestowing of titles and the seeking of the recognition of men serves to separate men from the body and distinguish them above their brethren. That's what the Catholics do. This we should never do. That is what the Pharisees and the rulers of this world love to do. So I would, I would imagine that we should not even be called teacher or pastor, for we all have one teacher and one pastor, and that is Christ. This is why I personally eschew titles. But I do not eschew my brethren when they use titles because I understand that they do not have the same understanding, which I would profess to have. In fact, I'm certain that those who would flatter me with titles, not maybe all of them, but some of them, are really attempting to seek my gratitude and my favor. We should all look at it that way. Perhaps even in an attempt to manipulate me. And therefore, trying to bestow on me a title 
they are really doing me a disservice rather than an honor, whether they do it consciously or not. So I would imagine that anybody who would want to use a title should read Job 32, 20 through 22. Because titles are flattering. Men who flatter you are trying to get something from you or to persuade you unduly. Verse 9, And you shall not call your father upon the earth, for one is your father, the heavenly. And men that take titles upon themselves are simply trying to elevate themselves above you. I'm sorry. I had to finish that. And you shall not call your father upon the earth, for one is your father, the heavenly. We have earthly fathers, those who sired us. And Christ recognized his own earthly father, right? He subjected himself to his parents, right? At 12 years old, as it says in the gospel. But in the time of Christ and thereafter, it had been fitting for a man to be called father by others who patronized him. In fact, we get the very word patronize from the Latin word for father. There's an irony in history that I, I would, in, in, in um, history as we understand it, that I would like to explain. I, I find it very ironic. In 2 BC, Caesar Augustus was designated father of his country, Pater Patriae. And this year was the first year in the life of Christ. Therefore, I believe that it's quite ironic, the Roman Empire being prophesied in the books of the Bible long before it rose to power, that the real father of Rome, God himself, was born on earth in the lowliest of conditions at the very time when Caesar Augustus, Octavius, a, real, a mere man, was being granted that magnificent title. Use of the word father as a title for a benefactor was a common practice in Rome. The apostles used the word father for those who have sired us both biologically and in the gospel, but they never intended the term to become a title, which would be wholly contrary to what Christ states here. Therefore, it is incredible how quickly men ignored this admonition and began, began granting the, the word as a title to other men. And I'll give an example. Eusebius Pamphilius in his ecclesiastical history quotes the Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria, who used the title as a re title of respect for his predecessor in office, Heraclius, in the 3rd century A.D. The Romans didn't use the title officially for their bishop until the 6th century. However, it is clear from the words of Christ that we should not use the title at all. We have one Father, Yahweh, and no man deserves to be elevated above his brother. There are plenty of other ways to show respect for our deserving brethren rather than elevating them above men. Verse 10. Neither should you be called guides because one is your guide. The Christ. And he who is great among you shall be your servant. But whoever should exalt himself shall be humbled, humbled by God. And whoever should humble himself 
shall be exalted. Whether in this life or in the kingdom of heaven, those who would seek to exalt themselves shall indeed be humbled. The example of the Christ is that if we would humble ourselves and instead seek to serve our brethren, then we shall have a greater reward in the kingdom of heaven. Servants do not typically wear crowns, magnificent robes, or titles of grandeur. They don't wear titles at all. And if we should not be called father, teacher, or guide, then who is our pastor? Verse 13. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut up the kingdom of the heavens before men, for you do not enter in, nor do you allow those entering in to enter. Christ means that when Christ means that they bar men from the kingdom of heaven here on earth, where the kingdom of heaven should indeed be. The Pharisees seeking control for themselves, prohibit those conditions which would lead to the natural occurrence of God's kingdom on earth, which happens when good men are allowed to rule themselves in peace. We saw glimpses of what life should be like for Christians living in conformance to the will of God. We saw it in the so-called dark ages, which really weren't dark. They were only dark for the Jews and again in the beginnings of the founding of these United States. Here is what Yahweh said of the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4, which is exactly what we also see here in Matthew, and again in our world today. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of Yahweh be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly? At Revelations chapter 3, verse 7, Yahweh speaks of himself where he says that he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. While the enemies of God try in earnest to prevent the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In the end, they truly won't be able to keep any of us out of the kingdom of heaven. They shall fail. Well, Matthew 23, 14, which is the next verse, is a verse favored by many people, and I've referred to it myself when it's convenient. It does not exist in any of the most ancient manuscripts, except the 5th century Codex Washingtonensis. It's called the Codex Washingtonensis only because it's kept in Washington, D.C., where it resides in the Smithsonian, I think. It is wanting, Matthew 23, 14 is wanting in the Codex of Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Bazai, and in all the early extant copies of the Latin Vulgate, the Syriac, and the Coptic manuscripts. I could guess from later manuscripts that this verse was in the Alexandrian manuscripts, but both the Codices Alexandrinus and Ephraim Syri are wanting all or most of Matthew 23, so it cannot be told 
whether they actually contain verse 14 or not. For these reasons, the verse was omitted from the Christogenian New Testament. Here I will read it from the King James Version. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. The text of the verse certainly fits the behavior of the scribes and the Pharisees. But for, for, for the te- ancient proofs and textual reasons, I couldn't include it. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you go about the sea in the desert to make one convert. And when it happens, you make him a son of Gehenna twice as much as yourselves. Gehenna is an anglicized form of the Greek. The Greek word, which is, which is actually the Hellenization of a phrase, which in Hebrew originally meant land of Hinnom. We get a picture of what Christ refers to from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 31 and 32, and I quote, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. So the son of Hinnom gives us in Greek, Dahi Hinnom, which is Gehenna, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. So here we have Christ telling these Pharisees and scribes that they are the children of Hinnom, of those who burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. The Pharisees, actually being adversarial to God, make their followers twice the children of hell as they are themselves. The um, Clifton has quoted this in, in John Lightfoot's commentary on the Bible from the Talmud and Hebraica. Lightfoot reveals that the Pharisees of this period were actually seeking proselytes into their version of Judaism. And they were seeking as many proselytes as they could um, as they could obtain. When they found a proselyte, they would baptize him by immersing him in water. It is explained by Lightfoot that the Pharisees believed that going into the bath of water, they were but um, goyim, I'll use that term, and coming out, they somehow transformed themselves into Israelites. And it's very much like the baptism ritual practice today. You go into the water a sinner, which is what the Pharisees would consider the goyim, and you would come out of the water saved. Well, Well, the Bible teaches that Baptized or not, all of Israel shall be saved, but only the seed of Israel. And there's no such thing as spiritual sperm. But we see again that idea that you could spiritually convert somebody to something that they are not, that that idea is also a part of the leaven of the Pharisees.
So basically, the entire Catholic teaching is taken from the leaven of the Pharisees concerning baptism, concerning spiritual transformation into something that you're not, concerning punishment in hell for bad people, and that's all the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, He who should swear by the temple, it is nothing. But he who should swear by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. In other words, to keep his oath. The Jews of the first century were looking for ways to get out of their oath, too. This is probably before they developed the Kal Nidra. Verse 17, Foolish and blind men, for what is greater, the gold or the temple which sanctifies the gold? And he who should swear by the altar, as they said, it is nothing. But he who should swear by the gift upon it, he is obligated. Let me read at this point Exodus 29:37. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever touches the altar shall be holy. It is clear that the altar is esteemed to be greater than the gift which is offered upon it, even though Christ is telling us the Pharisees taught the opposite. Foolish and blind men, for what is greater, the gift or the altar which sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who is sworn by the altar swears by it and by all things which are upon it. And he who is sworn by the temple swears by it and by him dwelling in it. And he who is sworn by heaven swears by the throne of Yahweh and by him sitting upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you give a tenth of the mint and anise and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. Yet it is necessary to do these things and not neglect those others. It is necessary to uphold the tithe, in other words, since before the Passion of the Christ, we are still under the Levitical law. But it is also necessary to uphold the judgment and mercy and faith commanded by the law. The Pharisees only upheld those things which were visible to men. The rituals and the ceremony and the tithes and the gifts. And they neglected righteous judgment and mercy and faith. Those things which men could see were important to them. Since by that appearance of piety and the pretense of righteousness, were they able to hold their sway over the people. Yet upholding only a portion of the law while claiming to be, to be men of God and teachers of the law, they were indeed hypocrites, and they broke the law regularly, disdaining most of it in favor of their own tradition and their covert criminal activities. Blind guides, straining out the gnat, but swallowing the camel. They rule over men with the letter of the law, straining out the gnats. They neglect love and mercy and the spirit of the law thereby swallowing a camel. They sought to appear pious, 
Yet they had no care for anything but their own well-being, their position, their office, their authority. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the insides are filled from rapine and incontinence. Blind Pharisees cleanse first the insides of the cup and the dish in order that the outsides of them shall be clean. In other words, they filled their cups and their bowls with food and drink bought from the wages of unrighteousness, lies and extortion, profits on money lending, and bribes, and whatever else they gained through greed and corruption. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outside, but inside are full of the bones of corpses and all uncleanness. Thusly indeed, you also outside appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They don't have the spirit of God in them. Nor do they have the law of God written in their hearts. They never had those things because they are not the people of God in the first place. Being whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, they are just what Jude describes, Jude describes in his epistle at verse 12. And I quote, Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Many scriptures converge here in Jude 12. The withered tree, which, as Christ predicts in chapter 24, will again shoot forth, shoot forth its branches at the time of the harvest, which we hope to be in today, right? Or, or to be at least very close to it. The bad trees, of which the fruit cannot be good, described by John the Baptist, and recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3. The parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13, which bore no fruit for three years, and which was then torn up in the fourth year, describes the ministry of Christ in Judea. All of these scriptures, and many more like them, perfectly describe world Jewry. By this we know that any Judean who was not a Christian by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem would never bear fruit worthy of God under any circumstances. They are all to be rejected by Christians without exception. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we were in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners in the blood of the prophets. Thusly, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And you shall fulfill the measure of your fathers. Serpents, race of vipers, how could you escape the judgment of Gehenna? Which is the lake of fire which is eternal destruction. 
We are not told how the prophets died explicitly anywhere in the scriptures, which are considered to be canonical. There are apocryphal traditions as to the deaths of some of them, such as the one that describes Isaiah being sawed in half. Where Paul describes many of the torments which fell upon the faithful of God's people, he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, that they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, sawed in half. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. But even Paul makes no specific references in that chapter. But where we do see the priests of Yahweh slain in the Old Testament, we see that it was commanded at one point by Jezebel, a woman who may well have actually been a Canaanite, or the priests that were slain by Doug the Edomite, who slew the priests of Yahweh for Saul when Saul could find no Israelite who would perform the wicked deed. While there are apparently exceptions to this, with this in mind, we shall read the next verses before commenting further. Verse 34. For this reason, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall flog in your assembly halls and persecute from city to city. Thusly should, you, thusly should come upon you all the righteous blood poured out upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, who had been murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this race. The words, first let me say that the words son of Barachias, which are found describing Zacharias in the King James Version, Those words are wanting in the Codex Sinaiticus here, and they're all also wanting, wanting in Luke's account of Christ's words in this episode. For that and for historical reasons, I therefore esteem them to be an interpolation, and I have omitted them from my translation. It's simply um, Zacharias. It's not Zacharias, the son of Barachias. After the writers of the Protoevangelion of James, which is, even though it's not proven to be canonical, and I do have problems with it, it is from the time of Christ or thereabouts. It is a very old document. I also am persuaded that Zacharias, the Zacharias met here may well be the father of John the Baptist, who is also a temple priest and who very well fits the description given here. There was another Zacharias, who was a priest, but who was not the Zechariah of the Book of Prophecy, known by that name, who was slain in the scripture, and that is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, for which see 2 Chronicles 24.20, but neither can he be the Zechariah, son of Barachias, right? Christ called these scribes and Pharisees a race 
of vipers. This word for race is genemata. And genemata is the same term for them, genemata, a race of vipers, genemata tonikidno, for which John the Baptist used describing these people as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 3. The word genemata refers not, not merely to the race, but to offspring. It's a specific word which refers to offspring. Properly, genema is that which is produced or born. So Yahshua is calling the parents of these scribes and Pharisees vipers, and not merely these men themselves. And the use of the word race in that manner is wholly appropriate, but he's actually calling them the offspring of vipers. It must therefore be imagined that Yahshua is either engaging in unfair name-calling, which is slander, or he is stating a simple truth. The only race which could be held responsible for the death of Abel are the descendants of Cain. The descendants of Seth can by no means be held responsible for the death of Abel. It can be proven from the scripture that the Edomites and the Canaanites, but certainly not the Israelites, indeed descended in part from Cain, from the Kenites. In order for Yahshua's statement to be free from slander, these scribes and Pharisees had to be descended from Cain. In order for Yahshua's statement to be free from slander, they had to be descended from the Genesis 3 serpent. They had to be the, that their parents had to be serpents. Not literal snakes, but the descendants of the Genesis 3 serpent through Cain. Otherwise, Christ is a liar. Anyone who denies two seed-blind doctrines plainly attempts to make Christ a liar, or at least a slanderer. The law, which Yahweh always upholds, even though we can't, the law has provisions against people who make false charges. So we either imagine that Yahweh breaks his own law, which he certainly does not do, or Christ is telling us the simple truth here, that these people are from that race which can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. That has to be the descendants of Cain. That has to be what Christ means by calling their fathers, their parents. He's saying that they're the offspring of vipers, of serpents. God is not a slanderer. God just tells the truth and let every man be a liar. True seed line is true. And whoever denies it is a liar. It is wholly evident from Jeremiah chapters 2 and 24 and from Ezekiel chapter 16 and elsewhere that the old Jerusalem 
was just as corrupt and for the same reasons as the Jerusalem at the time of Christ. Jeremiah 2.21 and 22, and I quote, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Jeremiah chapter 24. To understand Jerusalem. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh. After the book of Drezar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs for the first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Remember the tree of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, its fruit could not be eaten. But it was. And the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. They are the Judeans that found Christianity. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me, to Christ, with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Surely thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem, that remain in this land. And them that dwell in the land of Egypt. It's not that Zedekiah is evil. It's that he and his princes are being given over to these bad things. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. For their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse. In all places, whither I shall drive them. And I will send a sword and famine and a pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and their fathers. So Yahweh is using the evil figs of Jerusalem to punish the people of Judah, who are disobedient to his word, and obviously Zedekiah is among them. Ezekiel helps us solve this, this, why these figs are evil, why a pleasant plant was planted and it became a strange vine. That same chapter of Jeremiah talks about broken cisterns, the clouds without water, which Jude describes. My people have chewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. We also find that in that same Jeremiah chapter 2. Ezekiel helps us solve that puzzle in chapter 16, 
where Yahweh says, again, the word of the Yahweh, where Ezekiel says, again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Israel, unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother was a Hittite. Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and tell her that her father was an Amorite and her mother was a Hittite. Canaanite tribes. The Canaanites had infiltrated Jerusalem. And that's how Yahweh's people could become a strange plant. And that's how Yahweh's people could bear sin that could not be washed off. Because it's in their genes. In 1 Chronicles, at the end of chapter 2, we are informed again that we are also informed that the Kenites were described in Judah. So there is certainly nothing new under the sun. Revelation chapter 18, verse 24 states, referring to Mystery Babylon, that in her was the blood of the prophets found and of the saints and of all that was slain upon the earth. It is safe, understanding the true nature of Mystery Babylon, to lay the blood of the prophets at the feet of the Talmudic and Satanic Jew. There's also a wordplay in the words of Christ, which works in English but not in Greek. All the prophets from Abel to Zechariah seem to stand for all the prophets from A to Z. I just thought I'd mention that as an aside. Verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. She kills the prophets and stones those being sent to her. How often have I desired to gather your children, by which manner a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, and you desired it not, because her children were always under the sway of the Kenite scribes and the Hittites and the Amorites. Psalm 91.4, he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. Verse 38, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Here I would like to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, which is basically Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy concerning the advent of the Messiah. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Here we go. Christ released Israel from the law. That's how the transgression was finished. Sin is transgression of the law. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Go therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and it can be established It's from roughly, I believe it was 557 or 556 B.C. to the beginning of Christ's ministry was 69 and a half prophetic weeks. 
uh, I'm sorry, 457 or 456 BC, uh, up to um, the beginning of Christ's ministry, which was in 30 AD. Was 493 and a half years, roughly. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, now that prince, the subject has not changed. A lot of people want to make that prince Titus the Roman, which is not true. Titus was never a Roman prince. Even when Vespasian became emperor, Titus was not prince until Vespasian would would officially designate him as his successor. And very often in Roman politics, a man's son was not his successor. Vespasian had just become the emperor. Well, when this war began, Vespasian was not the emperor. Titus is not this prince. This prince is the same prince as Messiah the prince in chapter 25. Mainstream commentators don't understand how the Romans could be the people of God. Therefore, they have a problem with correctly interpreting this verse. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah the Prince be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince, meaning Christ, shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. That is the passion of the Christ. He was the last sacrifice. He caused the sacrifices and the oblations, the temple rituals, to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations in Jerusalem, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So where Christ says, behold, your house is left to you. Desolate, he is only quoting what was written about him six centuries before by Daniel the prophet. This may well give us insight into the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, where Christ mentions it in the next chapter of Matthew 24, 15, and I shall reserve further comment until next week when, Yahweh willing, I will cover that chapter. Verse 39, For I say to you, by no means may you see me from now until you should say, Blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. Here in Matthew, Christ makes this statement after his triumphant ride into Jerusalem on the Mass, which was recorded two chapters ago. In Luke, it is recorded that Christ made this statement previously in Luke chapter 13 in a different conversation And then the procession of Christ into Jerusalem occurs as it is recorded in Luke chapter 19. That's not a conflict. It's more evident that the words of which Christ uttered here were also spoken by him on more than one occasion. But here he has to be speaking of the future. 
This has to happen again, that Christ will come once more in the name of Yahweh. And we have that promise. That is the Christian promise. That he will come back the same way he left. This quote is from Psalm 118, verse 26, where it also speaks of the stone which the builders refused. That's all for today. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I'll be here next week, Yahweh willing, with Matthew chapter 24. Praise Yahweh. Good night.